You're listening to a sermon from Centerpoint Bathgate, available here each week. We hope you enjoy this talk and join us for more, either online or in person at Simpson Primary School Bathgate, any Sunday morning at half past ten. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Great to have you along with us at Centerpoint today as we continue our Advent series. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, looking at the Christmas story from Matthew's perspective. In the first week, we looked at Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, and saw how this God's gift at Christmas was a well-planned gift, something that he had planned way back many centuries before as we go back into the Old Testament. Last week we saw how God's gift at Christmas was a gift for everyone. And today we're going to see that God's gift at Christmas, Jesus, is a perfect gift. Now, when we use this phrase, perfect gift, I don't know what comes to your mind. I was unsure what a perfect gift might be, and so I googled perfect gift. Now, all of us perhaps have a different idea of what a perfect gift might be, and this changes a bit as we age. I I think a seven-year-old's perfect gift is slightly different from a 17-year-old's and slightly different from a 37-year-old perspective on what a perfect gift is is. But when I googled perfect gift, the first thing that came up, the perfect gift was a gift that you could get at Herod's. This was a food basket called the Herodian. For only 2,500 pounds, you can throw a fun party. Now, I am sure that there is some good food in this basket, but think about that. Boom, you have one party and the whole 2,500 pounds gone. But for those of you who really want to splurge, there's the ultimate. Now, for only 5,000 pounds, you can upgrade the quality and the quantity. And so I'm assuming this is what Ryan and Jenna have done today, and we're going to show up, and boom, the ultimate is going to be the spread that awaits us. Now, if that's a little bit out of your price tag, another, when I googled perfect gift, another gift that came up was a rock. For only 85 pounds, you can give someone a rock. No, it's a rock from California, and it comes in a little nice leather pouch. But at the end of the day, it's still a rock. Now, the difference between this gift and the ultimate or the Herodian is that the one virtue of this 85-pound rock that you could pick up an equivalent of right outside for free, the benefit is the rock will last longer. You can hold on to that rock for a long time, and it's not going to go anywhere. That Herodian, once you've had your party, it's all gone. Now, today as we come to really the the climax of the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see that God's idea of a perfect gift is perhaps a little bit different from what might be on our Christmas lists this year. But again, the big idea is that God hasn't given us what we wanted. He's given us what we needed. And in Jesus, he has given us the perfect gift. So let's read together in Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll unpack this text and see what God has for us here. So this is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and 
unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, as we reflect on this text, the first thing that we need to do, as any good interpreter of the Bible always does, is to put a text in context. And the context here is what we have just read in the previous bit of Matthew chapter 1. And we see in, in verse 1 that Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we understand that Matthew is telling a story in which Jesus, this one who's born, Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew is answering how this Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the son of Abraham. We read, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, the interesting thing in verse 16 is that Matthew is very intentional never to call Joseph the father of Jesus. He explains that Jesus was born through Mary, but as he's giving this genealogy, he mentions that Jacob, the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And so what Matthew is answering, the, the big question is that Jesus is in this lineage of the kings of Israel. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David by adoption. Joseph is the heir to this throne. Jesus, as the human, God incarnate, inherits this throne by adoption. Now, Jesus is the son of God by being born by the Holy Spirit, but he's the son of David through adoption by Joseph. That's the story that Matthew is telling as we get into our text today. And so the first thing that we see is a situation. Now, if you get a phone call and somebody says, we've got a situation here, you're preparing yourself for some bad news. Because that kind of situation, you're thinking, okay, what's going on here? And as we look at this text, this was a situation. This was an out of the ordinary situation. And the, the situation's described very simply, the birth of Jesus took this way when his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand this, we need to understand something about Jewish betrothal. The way that it worked was that a father and the prospective groom would reach some agreement, and they would come together and have this, this ceremony where the betrothal took place, and it was a promise 
of marriage. Now, the way that we use the word engagement is not yet to the level of what a Jewish betrothal was. This was a promise. This was a contract. And for that year, until the wedding took place, they were considered as belonging to each other. So they did not have marital relations. And as it says at the very end here, Joseph did not know her until after Jesus was born. But during this year, they lived faithfully to each other. And to break off a betrothal was the equivalent of divorce. So this was a serious thing. The fact that they're betrothed, they're promised, they're in a contract, they're considered married, just not living together. And so... The next thing that we read is that before they came together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, found to be with child is a Bible way of saying she was pregnant. And the fact that they found it means that her baby bump started to show. Somewhere along the way, in my mind, even though there's no record of it in the Bible, I imagine some intense fellowship between Mary and Joseph. Mary, what is this thing that looks like a baby bump? Please tell me this is not a baby bump. No, Joseph, it is, but it's okay. It's from the Holy Spirit. That was the conversation. And Mary was absolutely right, as our Advent reading from the Gospel of Luke reminded us, that Mary was told, this is what's going to happen. She said, let it be done to me according to your will. And so, as we realize, this situation is not an ordinary situation. We don't have a category for pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This has happened once in human history. One time. And here it is. Now, How's Joseph going to respond to this? And so this is the second part of the situation. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, when we read this, our sort of 21st century Western perspective, we want to read into this little phrase, just man and unwilling to put her to shame, that Joseph's justice was his compassion, that he didn't want to embarrass Mary, and that's why he was just. But really, what Matthew is saying here is that in terms of justice, when this word is used in a Hebrew context, it means that Joseph was a lover of the law. And legally, looking at a pregnant woman betrothed to him that he's not had relationship with, she has committed adultery. And so the just thing to do, the righteous thing to do is to divorce her because if he married her, he would be claiming that they had had relations and they hadn't. He would be publicly portraying himself as a liar. And so as a just man, the right thing to do is to divorce her. Now, he could have done that very publicly. He is compassionate and determines, I'm going to do this quietly. Possibly, the statement of Mary's was playing in his mind. As she said, this is from the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it. This has never happened. God wouldn't do such a thing. But in this tiny little fractional possibility that she's right, okay, we'll just keep this quiet and I don't want to embarrass her. That's the context. Joseph is planning to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly. He's just, he loves the law, but he's also 
compassionate. Now it's at this moment that an angel breaks in to give Joseph the explanation and we learn God's perspective on what's going on. And we learn it from Joseph's perspective and can imagine him hearing this. Verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so the explanation is very simply that Jesus, this, this child in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, that this is from God. And so again, Joseph is going to adopt Jesus, and by that Jesus will become the son of David. And so this explanation seems to work for Joseph, and it gives him enough to go on. Now, the implication of this, and this is where the angel goes on to say this is the significance of what has happened in verse 21. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, there's a lot that's packed into this little verse. First of all, calling his name Jesus. This name Jesus is the the Greek version of the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or God saves. And this is one of the primary themes all through the Old Testament, the idea that God saves. God is the one who saves. When the children of Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, Miriam is right there in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. All through the Psalms, we we see this. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. God is the one who saves. We saw a little video about Christmas in a nutshell. If you want the gospel in a nutshell, the gospel in a nutshell is very simply this. God saves sinners. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, in the Old Testament, when this word salvation is used, that word can be translated as deliverance. And we can think of the the children of Israel coming through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, They've been cut off. They've been delivered from the bondage and slavery in Egypt. They've been delivered into freedom. And so there was often a political connotation to this. And so the expectation that was associated with the promised Messiah is that he will save his people from political domination. He will save his people from these big, bad, nasty Romans. The announcement of the angel is that's not the first order kind of salvation Jesus is going to bring. Now, if you turn to the book of Revelation, you read the end of the story, you see actually, ultimately, yes, Jesus delivers us from everything, all oppression, political, economic. Jesus deals with the whole thing. But what Matthew says According to this angel Gabriel, Jesus is going to deliver us from sin. Now, this word sin simply means to miss the mark. It's like an archer aiming for a target, and they just completely miss the target. The arrow goes way off. That's what sin is. The target is the character of God, and we've all missed it. None of us are perfect from a God perspective. None of us live up according to the standard of God, which is his own character. We've all sinned. And so when it says that he will save his people from their sins, he's talking about the 
something that belongs to the human condition. This is who we are. We are sinful. We are, we're, we're broken and we're needy and we have missed the mark. And so, yes, Jesus is the son of David, but he's coming as a Messiah, first and foremost, not to bring political freedom to these first century Jews, which is what they wanted, but to bring deliverance from sin. Now, if we went around <clears throat> West Ranch, Bathgate, West Lothian, and conducted a poll of people and asked the question, what is the biggest issue facing your life? There's a lot of different issues that people might say. They might say climate change. They might say Brexit. They might say the economy. Maybe world hunger is the big thing. Scottish football desperately needs help. How many are going to say sin? Human sin is the thing that needs solving. What Matthew is reminding us here, what this angel was telling Gabriel, is that in Jesus, God isn't necessarily giving us what we want. He's giving us what we need. The fundamental issue facing every human is our sinfulness in the context of a holy and perfect God. The good news is that God has given us in Jesus what we need. And that brings us to an observation that Matthew makes as he's reflecting on all that's happened. In verse 22, he says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, he's quoting here from the book of Isaiah, a prophecy that Isaiah made to Ahaz. And when you go back and you read the prophecy to Ahaz, obviously it meant something at that time to Ahaz. But even in reading the context and knowing the history of Israel, as it's recorded in Kings and Chronicles, it's difficult to put together how it was fulfilled then. Many prophecies in the Old Testament have a double fulfillment. It meant something at the time but it's also looking forward to the future. And here Matthew is saying that this prophecy that was made to Ahaz about a virgin who will conceive and bear a son, that this is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, if you go back and look at the Hebrew word for virgin, as it is there in Isaiah, it is the word virgin. And so it can also be translated as young maiden, but the translators of the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, um, if you're ever reading an academic theology book and you see the little LXX, that means that's shorthand for the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament, which is the, New T the, the Old Testament, which is the Old Testament that would have been used in most of the synagogues across the Roman Empire when Jesus lived. The word that's translated as sometimes young maiden or here virgin in the Greek is the word virgin. And so the, the translators had no misconception about, well, maybe this was just a, a young woman. No, this was a virgin and she shall conceive, which is why this is such a big deal. Because virgins don't conceive unless there's something else going on. And the something else here is that a virgin's not only conceiving, but she is bearing a son as a virgin. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there are two key things here that are going on. First of all, the 
The virgin birth means that Jesus is the Son of God. And it also means that Jesus is born sinless. See, if Jesus were born of a human, he would from his human lineage, like all of us, inherit sinfulness. Jesus, as the second Adam, is not from the line of Adam. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that he was born sin-free. Now, the importance of that is that because he was sin-free, he can save us from our sins. An analogy might be like this. If you're drowning, you think of someone who's drowning in water. You don't ask someone else who's drowning to help save you. No, to save a drowning person requires a non-drowning person to save the person who's drowning. They come in a boat or they're on a platform. They have some position of strength to be able to save the person. The reason no human can save other humans is that we're all sinful. We're all afflicted with the same issue. Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, did not inherit sinfulness and therefore can save us from our sins. This is really good news. The other part of this is that Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, God has been with his people all through the ages. The Old Testament shows God being with his people in a variety of ways. But in Jesus, God is uniquely with us. God is with us in a very special way in the person of Jesus. God has stepped into human history to identify with us and identify with our lives. Now, at the end of this, we read the culmination where all of this comes together and we see what happened. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he did not know her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the point that Matthew's making here is that first, Jesus is both the son of God and the son of David. He's the son of David by adoption through Joseph. And the point of this story is that this is how Jesus came to be the son of David. But the fact that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he's also the son of God. And because he is the son of God and perfect, he can save us from our sins. And God is present with us uniquely in the person of Jesus. You know, one of the best descriptions of what is going on here is what the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel, that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. What John summarizes theologically, Matthew is describing historically. This was God's power move to deliver us from the bondage to sin. So when we reflect on what it means that God has given us a perfect gift, Jesus is the perfect gift. Jesus is the perfect gift that meets our need to a T. Now, it might not be the need that we perceive. It might not be the need that we want satisfied. But Jesus is God's perfect gift to meet what we most need. Now, our perception of a perfect gift changes. When I was seven years old, my perception of a perfect gift was this knight in Vikings little playset. 
couldn't wait. And when I remember going in this Christmas morning, as a seven-year-old, there's this night in Viking place up there. I was absolutely thrilled. Now, next week if I come in and there's a night in Viking place up there, I'm going to be a little bit disappointed because <clears throat> I don't play knights and Vikings anymore like a seven-year-old. Maybe I need to have Christopher over. <laughs> you want to be knights or Vikings? Our perception of what God has given us may be a little bit clouded. I don't know if you've ever gotten a gift under the tree and you look at it and say, what is this all about? Thanks, but really, in Jesus, God's given us exactly what we need and the promise is that we can be delivered from our sins and we can be in the presence of God in a unique and beautiful way that was never available before. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we reflect on these amazing events described in Matthew chapter 1. It's difficult for us to, to put ourselves in Mary's place or in Joseph's place. Joseph did not have a category for conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if we're honest today, Lord, we don't understand how you did that. We don't understand the, the, the mechanisms involved in all that. But we thank you that you have explained the significance of this in crystal clear language. That right at the heart of the Christmas story is this beautiful declaration. He will save his people from their sins. Lord, we don't like to admit that we're sinners, but we are. We're drowning in our own sin, and we desperately need you to break in and save us. And we thank you that this is what you have done in Jesus. Not only have you saved us, but you're with us. We thank you, living God, that this Jesus who was Emmanuel promised, as you sent your followers out on mission, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. You're not only the God who saves, you're the God who's with us. For this we give you praise, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.